This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. I'm Charles Payne. I'm Kat Timp. I'm Stuart Varney. And this is the Fox News Rundown. Thursday, July 28th, 2022. I'm Dave Anthony. Could Taiwan be the next Ukraine? That possibility is leading to a growing tension between the U.S. and China. This is the number one national security threat to the United States. I'm Lisa Brady. America needs more pilots, but there's no quick fix for that during a long, hot summer for air travelers. I think now's the time to you know, not worry about pointing fingers and blaming one side or the other, but really for us to sit down and work together on how do we attract more talented young professionals to this industry. And I'm Charlie Kirk, and I've got the final word on the Fox News Rundown. What's America's number one threat? China. That's what the FBI director says, a threat to our economy and national security. And today, President Biden is expected to have a phone call with Chinese leader Xi Jinping amid growing tension over Taiwan, an island nation China considers its territory. And it's growing especially over House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's reported plan to go there next month. China is warning her not to. A foreign ministry spokesperson says through a translator, The Chinese side will take firm and strong measures to safeguard our sovereignty and territorial integrity. The U.S. must assume full responsibility for any severe consequence arising thereof. Those warnings led Taiwan to conduct air raid and preparedness drills. Some Democrats want Pelosi to reconsider that trip, but Republican Congressman Michael Waltz tells Fox, I always hesitate to say I support Speaker Pelosi in anything, but on this one, I absolutely do. She has to go. Saying not going sends a bad message to Taiwan and to the Japanese, the South Koreans, uh, the Australians, our allies in the region, that if we're not even willing to go and visit, uh, are we then going to stand for Taiwan and defend them? So there's a lot of tension leading up to the Biden-Xi phone call. We're the world's two most significant adversaries. We're both superpowers. General Jack Keane is a retired four-star general, chairman of the Institute for the Study of War and Fox News senior strategic analyst. Keeping the lines of communication open, uh, as the United States did with the Soviet Union uh, for 40 years, despite our different values and the fact that we were adversaries, is really critical. Certainly, the Biden administration recognizes that, I think, as any administration would recognize. Do you think that the the U.S. and China are now on the same level? Well, I do believe uh, we're superpowers. Certainly, it's a a revisionist ascent by China and the number two economy in the world. That gives them uh, extraordinary status in of itself. They're the most rapid growing military in the world. And in the Indo-Pacific region, they flat out gun and outman the United States. Uh, and, and it's not even close. So, yeah. And they have a nuclear arsenal that they've developed that's not as large as ours. Ours is around 1,700 strategic nuclear weapons. Theirs is in the hundreds. 
but their uh, pathway is quite significant in terms of its acceleration. Their weapons are all modern. Ours are not. Ours are atrophied quite significantly. There is money in the budget to begin, as there was in the Trump budget, to begin to uh, rehabilitate our weapon systems. But, yeah, they're definitely a, a, a superpower, and we're in a, a, a new kind of Cold War with them. There is a growing concern of some sort of a U.S. versus China clash ramped up if House Speaker Nancy Pelosi does indeed go to Taiwan, like there are reports she was planning to do in August. This has not happened where a Speaker of the House has gone to Taiwan since Newt Gingrich 25 years ago. Good idea, bad idea for her to go there, in your opinion? I think it's a good idea to go, but with some qualifications. Uh, well, maybe the best option here is to delay the visit. In other words, continue. We're committed to the visit, but given circumstances that are arising, we're just going to delay it and actually tell them when you're going to do it. The real issue, I believe, from talking to my insiders, is that President Xi's National Party Congress, where he's going to be enshrined for a third term and likely an indefinite term, is just a several weeks off. They are having challenges with their economy and pushback inside the, uh, the country with a, a number of critics. They don't want anything like this embarrassing President Xi prior to that meeting, which I think explains the heated rhetoric around this thing. All right. Uh, now, but there know, are some who said, General, uh, you know, if, if she doesn't go through with this visit, you're giving the Chinese a victory that they basically bullied us into not going. Well, I'm not saying not going. I'm just saying change the date. You know, we get past President Xi's uh, National Party Congress. That's all I'm saying. Okay. So our audience understands. In 1979, the Taiwan Relations Act was written. And the purpose of that was we were no longer going to recognize Taiwan in terms of diplomatic relations. And we were entering into diplomatic relations with mainland China. And that doc document governs the relationship between the United States and China as it pertains to Taiwan. And what came about then was the one China, two systems policy that both sides agreed to. And what has happened, though, in the years ensuing from that is the Chinese Communist Party, particularly under President Xi, have become very aggressive in terms of intimidating and coercing Taiwan. All the countries that continue to recognize Taiwan, China bullied them into breaking off diplomatic relations with them, or else you would suffer the consequences economically with us. So I think Taiwan is down to having relations with seven or eight countries. We have a representative in Taiwan and something that looks like an embassy, and I've been to it, but we don't call them an ambassador. They have a person, a representative here in the United States living in something that looks like an embassy, and I've, and I've met with her, and we don't refer to her as an ambassador. She's a representative of, of, of Taiwan. But what we have done through the years is we have self-imposed enormous restrictions on ourselves that are completely unnecessary. Listen to this. I mean, we have war plans, and I've seen them, uh, that are classified, and Indo-Pacific holds the war plans, and so does the Joint Staff, and they're approved all the way up to the President of the United States that if war breaks out over Taiwan with China and the, United, the President makes a decision to defend Taiwan, 
we do no military exchanges. None of our senior military leaders go to Taiwan to talk about the possibility of war and how would we synchronize our operations together. We don't even do tabletop computer exercises with them, much less actual exercises at sea or on land. That is grossly irresponsible, given the fact that there certainly is potential for war with China over Taiwan. Back in May, when President Biden was in Japan, a journalist asked him... You didn't want to get involved in the Ukraine conflict militarily for obvious reasons. Are you willing to get involved militarily to defend Taiwan if it comes to that? Yes. You are? That's the commitment we made. That led to speculation that he was signaling a change in U.S. policy, but the White House clarified, saying no. What does General Keene think? Well, I think he just spoke honestly, you know, about where he really is and his head on it. And uh, and what and, does it mean? It, yes, what would we do if Taiwan was actually attacked by China? What would we do? We would do everything in our power to help Taiwan defend itself. And I think a clear, unequivocal statement that says by the United States, if you attack Taiwan militarily in any way, the United States will come to Taiwan's defense and we will encourage our allies to do the same. Period. Okay. That is the statement that should be made. Would it be like Ukraine where we just send weapons or would the U.S. military actually get involved? No, no. We're saying we're going to fight. We're saying that the, the weight of the United States military will come down on you with everything that we have to stop your aggression in, ter- in terms of trying to seize Taiwan. Now, so our audience understands there's an all-out scenario, which is this is an island 100 miles off the shore, tough waters in 100 miles, an amphibious assault, parachute landings, helicopters assaults, air and missile attacks, significant. All of that would take place to seize the island. That is the worst-case scenario. China has lots of other options. There's islands that Taiwan owns that are right off the coast in view of mainland China. Those islands belong to Taiwan. China could plop military down on those islands and see what happens. Obviously, with all your expertise in war, what would it mean if the U.S. had a direct conflict with China like that? What could that escalate into? I think it would remain at the conventional level. Certainly, there is danger of a nuclear exchange and, you know, a world holocaust as a result of something like that. The potential is horrific. And that is what I think, at at the end of the day, also uh, kept the Soviet Union and the United States from ever entering into a conventional war. But nonetheless, if we did, this would be formidable, because when we play war games right now, David, and I played them, and I mean just a couple of years ago, when we try to come to the defense of Taiwan, you know, we're challenged. We're very challenged to win. We, so and, we don't. And, basically, you're saying we don't win in that conflict. In the way you, it, in the computer modeling, we don't win. That doesn't mean we would definitely lose. What I value in uh, in computer war games, David, having done so many of them, it, it really does point out the vulnerabilities that we have, as well as our strengths and what the enemy's vulnerabilities are. So they have a decided advantage. But nonetheless. Listen, this would be formidable. We don't want to fight the Chinese. We want to make certain that they know full well that when they look at us, they don't see a military advantage. They see a cost 
that's too high to be able to conduct a military operation against Taiwan based on what the United States and the allies would do to them. We're imposing too great a cost. That is the deterrence we had with the Soviet Union. They knew they came across that border. Uh, the cost would be very, very high to their conventional forces, casualties, etc. They're watching also, like like everybody, what's happening in Ukraine, and it hasn't gone oh, as well as as well as Russia had hoped, right? No, they're they're, they're watching it uh, absolutely. But here, here's my concern: is that she, as opposed to watching what's happening there, pauses and says, "Well, maybe we got to think twice about doing this." I, I I don't think that's where he is. He knows full well the United States is rearming in the Indo-Pacific with more modern weapons and more capabilities. Every year we're going to put more into it. And so in four or five years, we're going to have that deterrence. At least that's our goal. And we would be much more difficult to deal with at that point. The incentive for him is to do something sooner rather than later, you know, in, in three to five years. You think that's really possible? Yeah, I do. I absolutely do. Well, it sounds like the stakes are very high for the president on Thursday and beyond. Yeah, yeah, they continue to be. This is our number one adversary in the world, even though uh, Putin is certainly is a huge problem for us, and he's reset entire security framework in Europe for years to come, uh, and, and, and it is an issue. But this is the number one national security threat to the United States. General Jack Keane, retired four-star general, chairman of the Institute for the Study of War, Fox News senior strategic analyst. As always, good to have you on. Thank you. Yeah, take care, Dave. Thank you. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This is Charlie Kirk with your Fox News commentary coming up. It's been a turbulent summer at the airports. We're delayed an hour now, but we've already been up 24 hours. <laughs> so right. we're hopeful that we get out. Delays and cancellations blamed largely on the impact of staffing issues, especially a shortage of pilots, leaving airlines struggling to adjust when other disruptions like bad weather crop up. We saw, unfortunately, a lot of travelers miss cruises. Uh, miss weddings, miss graduations in the past couple weeks. Chi Tarver, the owner of Philadelphia-based Extra Vacations Travel Agency, says travelers should budget a lot of extra time for the foreseeable future. But the disruptions may be easing a bit. They are getting better because, you know, collectively the industry is taking down the schedule uh, as we go into the back half of the summer here and into the fall. Matt Koskel is executive vice president for Republic Airways, the only airline in the U.S. to own a flight training school called Lyft Academy. So, you know, reliability is going to improve, but it doesn't address the long term issue, which is, we need to produce more high-quality, qualified pilots in the long term to restore not only the reliability, 
but the availability and the frequency to the 90 million Americans across our country that specifically rely on regional carriers for their only connectivity to the national aviation grid. So yes, it's getting a little bit better, but it's getting better for the wrong reason, right? We're flying fewer flights as we go into uh, the fall than demand would call for. What's the problem with getting pilots? I mean, Hollywood portrays airline pilots as cool um, and exciting, well-paying job. <laughs> what What's happening that's causing the shortage? Well, look, like any problem, there's not just one issue. It's a, a host of issues. Um, but this is something we've been studying for over a decade, and we're not alone in doing so. The United States military has been addressing a pilot shortage of their own and, and reinvented their training curriculum in 2018 with the Pilot Next program. So we need to do a few things. First and foremost, we need to make the career more attractive financially and accessible to a wider audience. We compete with the very best talent across a lot of advanced technology fields. And we need to ensure that the pilot career not only provides great economic opportunity and earnings, which it does, but that we don't unnecessarily prohibit the entry by adding time requirements that don't add value to the training experience and the footprint. And I think that's the biggest misnomer today is that Time in the aircraft equates to training and high-quality training. And, and specifically, I'm sure you've heard recently with our Lyft Academy, we've put forward a new petition with the FAA that specifically addresses uh, that particular problem in the industry. Right. I think you want to be able to fly, um, have your pilots treated like military pilots, be allowed to fly after just 750 hours, which would be half the hours normally required for a non-military pilot, right? Yeah, so half of the time in the cockpit, but more than double the quality of the experience that those pilots have when they enter the commercial aviation industry. And that's really what we've done when we looked at this. We started to say, how is the military training pilots? And it's all about mission-specific targeted training using the best technology and enhanced repetition and scenario-based training to train to proficiency. And that's really what our petition does is it says, you know, let's use the structure that exists today. You know, to be clear, the structure exists today and there are already other pathways that exist. For example, a a pilot who has a four-year degree, a bachelor's degree from an approved institution can fly at a thousand hours. So these pathways exist already. What we're asking is for Congress, the administration, and industry to come together and do what we have always done best as an industry, advance safety and advance training and advance our excellence in operation by taking the best technology and the learnings from the past to improve on that training footprint. And that's really what our application is all about. How do you reassure passengers, though, who might be concerned about their pilot having fewer hours in the air, even though you're trying to emphasize that it's the quality and type of training rather than just the amount of hours? Yeah, so first and foremost, we start with safety is our brand. Um, We've been doing this for nearly 50 years at Republic Airways. Uh, We run one of the largest flight schools in our Lyft Academy. We'll be expanding it uh, with our recent announcement of our second campus at Myrtle Beach. And to realize that You know, we are committed to every move, every investment we make 
in enhancing safety. Um, and that's why we have partnered and looked at what the military has done and, and have the data to support better outcomes and quality training. Um, at the end of the day, we're data-based. We look at the data to demonstrate that the quality outcomes are there. And what we can demonstrate and will continue to demonstrate is lift pilots today under the current curriculum, outperform those pilots that come through every other channel to our airline. And our petition calls for us to make significant investments in enhancing that training footprint for those pilots. So we are confident that the data at the end of the day will demonstrate not only to the regulators and the administration, Congress, but to the flying public that we're producing a safer product for them and, and a product that they can be proud to be a part of. Do you think that in general, the regulations right now to be a commercial pilot in the U.S. are too strict? I think the regulations actually call for exactly what we're doing, right? So if you get into the nuance of the regulations, the regulations actually provided the FAA. They were wise enough to say, hey, you know, there are other ways to achieve proficiency. And a blanket 1,500 hours is one way. Um, But they actually gave the FAA the authority and the mandate to look at other pathways. And that's what the FAA has done. They've produced three pathways to date. There's a 1,250-hour pathway, there's a 1,000-hour pathway, and there's the 750-hour pathway through the U.S. military training footprint. And so um, this isn't changing the regulation. It's not saying the regulation's too strict. It's taking the action the regulation asked industry to do, which is make incremental investments, make differential investments that enhance safety. And we know more today than we did a decade ago when the uh, regulation was first launched. And we'll probably have a different conversation a decade from now as we learn more and we have more data and more technology to even further enhance safety. So how long has Lyft Academy been part of Republic Airways? And is is part of the goal with it to help avoid things like staffing shortages, to have more control over, you know, the process? Yeah, 100%. Lyft Academy is a sole mission organization uh, that's been in existence since 2018. And it's designed not to just train pilots. There's a lot of different schools to go and and learn how to be a pilot. And a pilot is a really broad category. It is designed from day one to train pilots for the mission that they deliver in regional aviation, to be in a crew environment delivering commercial aviation product. So there's not an experience out there today um, that provides mission-specific job readiness training from day one. Um, And we need more industry members to participate in programs like this because we can't do it alone. We need a lot of additional investments and we need a lot of collaboration with Congress and the administration to find the ways to bridge the gap for the massive pilot shortage that's affecting, you know, millions of Americans around the country. There are proposals already circulating in Congress, including one from South Carolina Republican Senator Lindsey Graham to raise the mandatory retirement age for pilots from 65 to 67. Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg signaling some pushback. I'm not going to be on board with anything that could compromise safety. The answer is to make sure that we have as many and as good pilots ready to take their place, to have a stronger pipeline. But Costco thinks changing the retirement age would help with shortage. 
It would absolutely be a step in the right direction. And, and yes, we're familiar with the proposal. We support the proposal. And we think, you know, that proposal is part of a comprehensive dialogue that we need to have together collaboratively with the stakeholders involved in this to address the issue. Um, there's a, a way to allow experienced professionals to continue to fly, and, and we support that. There's ways to address the cost and student loans for pilot education. So we support all of the proposals on the table and, and think they're a welcome dialogue with Congress and the administration. At least two Democratic senators are proposing fines to punish airlines for delays and cancellations that result from poor planning. Is that unfair in your view, or are some airlines acting, you know, irresponsibly with their scheduling? Yeah, yeah, I can't speak for all airlines. I can speak for our operation, and we're really proud of the work that our professionals have done throughout the entire course of the pandemic. Um, we've worked collaboratively with our labor groups since the beginning of the pandemic. Uh, we did not furlough a single one of our uh, pilots or flight attendants who were, you know, cockpit ready. So that we had the staff on the back end of the pandemic to answer the call. And and this isn't a, a pandemic related issue. The pandemic has worsened the situation and accelerated some of these curves. But we've been talking about these curves of, of shortages and necessary skilled resources in this industry for years. So, you know, I think now's the time to, you know, not worry about pointing fingers and blaming one side or the other, but really for us to sit down and work together on how do we attract more talented young professionals to this industry um, and get them to serving the 90 million Americans that rely on regional carriers for their connectivity. Delta, some Delta pilots have been picketing um, for better pay recently. You combine that with you know, more people choosing maybe to drive by car to avoid problems at the airports. Um, meantime, you've got demand for private airplane flights soaring during the pandemic. All of this adds up to a lot of pressure on the industry, right? Do you are you feeling that pressure overall at Republic? Well, look, sitting here today, you know, our staffing levels have never dipped to, you know, to a level that we've had to rebuild. What is an issue for us is um, we're a source of pilots for other carriers, such as our legacy carriers. So we're having to replenish uh, that attrition, and we're working diligently to do so. We made investments throughout the pandemic. We're actually today uh, building an, another 10-bay training simulator so that we can meet that demand for the next decade. We remain focused, just as we have throughout the entirety of the pandemic, to make the necessary investments, not only for the acute situation that we're facing this summer, which we know is a real burden to uh, the traveling public, but to be in a position to address the need long term. And, and that's really you know, where we're, we're focused. Um, and I feel confident that as we work together, we'll have an even better network to offer in the years to come. Matt Koskill, Executive Vice President of Republic Airways. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Lisa. I appreciate it and look forward to talking with you soon. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. Stay on top of the latest news and information from Fox News. Listen and download the Fox News Hourly Update on your time. The trending stories you need anytime you want it. Listen and download now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Subscribe to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. It's time for your Fox News commentary. Charlie Kirk. What's on your mind? I'm putting the college industry on trial. 
For decades, American parents and students have made the idea of going to college an idol, an indispensable part of growing up and a rite of passage to adulthood. In my new book, The College Scam, I go through a point-by-point -point indictment on exactly why the college industry has become a waste of money, time, intellect, and in fact, college is a scam. Am I telling kids not to go to college? Absolutely, at least for most students. My experience founding and growing Turning Point USA into the largest conservative campus organization in the country hardened my conviction that the root of the college tree is rotten to the core. I am very pro-education, but I am most definitely anti-college. Allow me to submit the evidence. First, colleges are running a federally sponsored scam. The college industry is heavily subsidized by the federal government, making it a scam not only perpetrated against students, but against taxpayers as well. Government's blank check for higher education in the form of federally backed student loans has reduced accountability, dramatically increased tuition, and ballooned the academic administration regime. College is also absurdly overpriced. College is supposed to provide a pathway to financial security and career success. That promise is true for fewer and fewer graduates. Student loan debt is crushing students and their parents, robbing young people of the dream of home ownership, family formation, and financial security. Additionally, colleges no longer provide students with the skills they need to succeed in the marketplace. Testing shows conclusively that many colleges do not improve students' critical thinking skills. Many employers say, quote, we can't hire college grads. They're not equipped to hold down a job, end quote. I constantly hear from hiring managers at TPUSA that the hardest skills to hire for are critical writing and problem solving. If colleges aren't teaching these skill sets, ask yourself, quote, what are they teaching exactly? More than not educating, colleges seem to degrade students' ability to think pragmatically. The ideology of postmodernism taught at most universities teaches them facts and reality are up for debate. In the college scam, I provide a list of some of the most ridiculous courses offered at universities. Further, universities are indoctrination zones where free speech is crushed. Universities used to open students' minds and widen their horizons. Today, universities weld minds shut. Radical students and faculty coerce and persecute their non-conforming peers through, quote, cancel culture and threats. The largest export of our universities is not just leftism. It is infantile tantrums that too often metastasize into outright hate. I have documented story after story of our Turning Point USA chapter members who have been physically assaulted and threatened with death for peacefully exercising their First Amendment rights on campus. I firmly believe that most, if not all, of the destructive ideas that are now eating away at the foundation of American society originated on college campuses. Critical race theory, radical gender theory, intersectionality, wokeism, Antifa, defund the police, white fragility, speech codes, cancel culture, anti-racism, the Green New Deal, and on and on. Despite the exorbitant costs and obvious pitfalls, too many parents are willing to play Russian roulette with their kids' values, saddling their kids with mountains of student loan debt, all to obtain a piece of paper that costs a quarter of a million dollars or more. It's time we repay the college cabal for the scam they've perpetrated against the American people. It's time we stop sending our most precious resource, our young people, to be injured inside the walls of these corrupt institutions. I challenge all students, parents, and grandparents to reconsider their assumptions, dive deeper into the statistics, the stories, and the damage these institutions are doing to our beautiful nation. I'm Charlie Kirk, the founder and CEO of Turning Point USA and author of The College Scam. It's available for purchase at collegescam.com. 
You've been listening to the Fox News Rundown. Rundown. Stay up to date by subscribing to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. And for up-to-the-minute news, go to foxnews.com. Hi, everybody. It's Brian Kilmeade. I want you to join me weekdays at 9 a.m. East as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and, of course, what you think. Listen live or get the podcast now at briankilmeadeshow.com. I'm Guy Benson. Join me weekdays at 3 p.m. Eastern as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and guests. Listen live on the Fox News app or get the free podcast at GuyBensonShow.com.